Hello and welcome to New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm Jeremy Kingsley, a senior editor at the EIU, and in this series, we'll be looking at the technological breakthroughs and bold ideas with the potential to bring about radical social, environmental and economic change, and look at the forces and the actors that will accelerate, slow down and shape that change. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. For our first episode, we're looking at food sustainability and the role technology could play addressing urgent environmental challenges. Drought conditions plus a major economic crisis have forced millions of people to go hungry. Warning that as a population of 7 billion, we're living beyond our means. Once fertile farmlands now dried out. The climate crisis is threatening the world's food supply and that humans must drastically alter their food production to prevent the catastrophic effects of global warming. Over the past 70 years, we have achieved huge increases in global food production, thanks to new agricultural technologies and techniques, such as high-yield crops, chemical fertilizers, improved irrigation and mechanized methods of cultivation, global hunger has fallen as the population has grown. But experts warn that an ever-growing demand for food, and particularly for meat, cannot be met sustainably. We could find large parts of the world, places where currently a great deal of our food is produced, no longer being suitable for farming because they become too hot, they become too dry, conditions become too extreme. Up to 70% more food by mid of the century for the increasing population and the increasing standard of living. How do you produce that additional food from the piece of land that is available on this planet? Recent studies say that incremental improvements in how we grow food will not be enough and that more radical innovations in agriculture will be critical to transforming the food system. Innovation in alternative proteins, in plant-based meats and dairy hold promise and could accelerate a transition towards a sustainable food system. Advances in synthetic biology and so-called precision fermentation, the ability to program microorganisms to build complex organic molecules, could allow us to go much further than plant-based meats, replacing fundamental sources of protein such as soy, feeding many more with much less. Is the future then to create more food in laboratories, making regular animal farming and even many plant crops things of the past? We believe that by 2030 there'll be 50% fewer livestock animals in the US and protein will be five times cheaper than it is now and 10 times by 2035. And so by 2035, essentially, livestock farming as we know it in the US will be obsolete. But is technological innovation enough to determine change in what we eat? How will consumers, industry incumbents and regulators shape how such technology is used? But before we look at these questions and more, let's look at the technologies that are attempting to disrupt traditional food production. Essentially, we are producing food out of thin air. One company looking to challenge how food is made and substantially reduce the environmental footprint of major sources of protein is Solar Foods, a Finnish startup that has developed a way of making a bulk protein ingredient using just CO2 and electricity. The company's chief technology officer, Dr. Jura Pekka Pitkinen, took us on a tour of its prototype lab in Helsinki. 
have an organism which grows on very minimal requirements. So it grows using essentially CO2, which we have captured directly from air. And it's a water solution that also we get from air. Then we are feeding it hydrogen and oxygen. So this we get by splitting water with electricity. So this happens every like 15, 20 minutes. And this is basically kind of miniature size of the process that we will then eventually need to scale up more than thousandfold. The end product is a protein-rich powder, which they call Soline, out of which you can produce entirely lab-grown meat, milk, eggs and other foods. It is about 65% protein. It is a complete protein, so it has all the nine essential amino acids. This is Dr. Passi Weinecker, the CEO of Solar Foods. Our primary product is the dried cells, basically. We are looking at to primarily replace animal-based proteins and classically meat with this ingredient. It is complete food as such, and it's very identical to soy and meat, but I wouldn't recommend you to eat only soy or only meat, but rather have a diet that includes several things. There are two aspects how our ingredient can be looked at. It is nutritious food. Then again, it's just a powder. Therefore, functionality is important, which means that once we have this powder and ingredient, we need to integrate it to consumer products. For example, plant-based meat alternatives. So there you need a mouth feeling that resembles meat, for example, and the ingredient at nutrition has to also have this texture to be a proper consumer product. And there you need also other ingredients, land-based ingredients, to make it a, a consumer product like that. So we focus on the, bringing the nutritional value and then adding some functionality, for example, that is juicy when you buy this, let's say, meat alternative in this case. And today, these meat-free products are growing in popularity, with familiar high street companies jumping in on the trend for recreating the taste and texture of meat in their vegetarian options. Introducing the great-tasting plant-based Beyond Sausage Sandwich. Available nationwide. The new meatless meatball marinara. Yay! Introducing the Impossible Whopper. Available nationwide. Sausage casserole a la carl. Now with meat-free cumberlands. But still with my magic touch. Solar Foods is just one of hundreds of startups finding ways to disconnect food production from agriculture. Some analysts reckon that as soon as lab-grown foods prove to be cheaper and superior to traditionally grown proteins, a radical transformation in our food system is inevitable. We believe that by 2030 there'll be 50% fewer livestock animals in the US and protein will be five times cheaper than it is now and 10 times by 2035. And so by 2035, essentially, livestock farming as we know it in the US will be obsolete. Catherine Tubb, a research fellow at RethinkX, studies technology-driven disruption and its effects on society. So we've focused on a technology called precision fermentation, which is the convergence of precision biology and fermentation. So fermentation is obviously that age-old process around for tens of thousands of years used to make food in that time. And then precision biology is more like the convergence of kind of synthetic biology, engineering, information technology, all coming down in cost. And it's just really the ability to understand our DNA and be able to write it and program it like computing. And then precision fermentation is a technology we've 
found that you can essentially make any protein by telling a microbe how to make it. And that has come about due to this convergence of technologies. And what does that mean if you can make any protein using a microbe? It's more efficient, it's faster, you're bypassing any other animal or any other kind of technological unit, you could argue a cow is a piece of technology used to make meat and milk, and you're bypassing that in order to make protein just much more efficiently and faster. Dr. Passi Weinecker again. If we go forward to the future, we see there is a new industry emerging around cultured meat, so producing real meat cells. And if we think that this kind of technology would replace cows completely, instead of producing feed for animals, you would need to produce feed for the cells and a lot of it. And we're also having a development to use our primary protein to develop a media where these real meat cells can be grown. And then at the end, consumer would have on the plate meat or fish as before, but how it arrived on the plate has completely changed. So the ultimate ingredients of what we eat will come not from farms, but from labs, like this one in Helsinki, impervious to climate or seasonality. So this is our direct air capture unit. So this is a container size system where we have eight of these uh, columns. So the columns are one meter in diameter, 20 centimeters in thickness. So air is flushed through the columns and the resin there captures CO2 and water molecules. And after heating up the columns, CO2 and water are are released and then they can be used in our process. So also here the principle originates from the space race time. So the resin was used, the technology was used in the spacecraft to capture CO2 from air. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management. Now let's hear their take on the future of food sustainability. Hello, my name is Marianne Johnson. I'm a financial analyst at Pictay Wealth Management in Geneva. Over the course of Marianne's professional career, she's lived in both Hong Kong and America. And this experience has shaped how she sees the relationship between food and society. Living in the United States for 17 years of my life, I've always struggled to understand the obesity that was endemic in the world's richest nation. As the population grows, how much longer can this go on? A study released in July by the University of Washington suggests that the global population will never reach 10 billion, as predicted by the UN, peaking instead at 9.7 billion. But regardless of who is correct, both institutions expect there to be in excess of 1.5 billion more mouths to feed in 30 years' time. This means food production will need to increase by as much as 4 billion tons a year if we're to prevent widespread hunger. This is a problem that isn't specific to one region or country and isn't going away soon. There is an alarming rise in obesity and undernourishment around the world because of our reliance on processed meals. Around one-fifth of deaths are caused by poor diets. This is more than smoking, alcohol, and armed conflict combined. There are also 600 million cases of foodborne diseases every year because of contaminated food. This is especially harmful to children in developing countries as conditions like diarrhea can lead to nutritional shortages with long-term negative health effects. But people are waking up to the fact that change is needed, and this is something that Marianne is witnessing 
especially when it comes to the food industry. Back in the 1990s, the organic food movement was initially niche, led by consumers concerned about the excessive use of chemicals and pesticides. Fast forward to today, the plant-based food market is worth a reported $4.5 billion in the US, growing at a rate five times that of total food sales. Attitudes to meat consumption are changing for ethical and environmental reasons. And in the West, it could mean a much smaller demand on traditional agriculture. In the long run, legacy industries like fertilizers and conventional animal production will likely decline. Looking even further into the future, we see growth in areas like personalized food using technology and AI, and in environmental innovations that make better use of land, like rewilding, reforestation, and agricultural-based carbon sequestration. Today, with consumer awareness rising to such a point that it's putting pressure on companies to change their portfolios, I think the way forward looks bright. In the next 40 years, the Earth will need to accommodate nearly 3 billion more people. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control or we don't. It's in the very poorest places that you're going to have a tripling in population by 2050. And so their ability to feed, educate, provide jobs, stability, protect the environment in those locations mean you know, they're faced with an almost impossible problem. The world's population is growing, and with it, so is the demand for food, and increasingly for meat. Intensified agriculture and surging demand is increasing carbon emissions, degrading soil and threatening biodiversity. At the same time, climate change is making it harder to grow food. We urgently need some radical change if we're going to get through this century. George Monbiot is an environmentalist and political commentator. He argues that lab-grown foods and precision fermentation will be vital for the planet. We're seeing potentially very major constraints on food supply developing due to the loss of soil, the degradation and erosion of soil, the loss of irrigation water, the loss of pollinators in some parts of the world, but particularly due to the impacts of global heating. And unfortunately, it now seems pretty clear that we are committed to at least two degrees of global heating because governments simply aren't making the necessary efforts. We are quite likely, according to some recent scientific papers, to find ourselves confronted by global systemic harvest failure, which is something we've never encountered before, something which is really unimaginable in an era where there's a global food surplus, even though it's very poorly distributed. And we could also find large parts of the world, places where currently a great deal of our food is produced, no longer being suitable for farming because they become too hot, they become too dry, conditions become too extreme. There's several reasons why global heating could be devastating for our food supplies. And it seems to me that these technologies allow us to replace 
really quite a substantial amount of the food that we're currently producing by farming, particularly replacing the protein and fat production that we currently get from farming. Dr. Passi Weinecker, the CEO of Solar Foods, agrees. If we think about the problem of, of the current food system, it's an industry with, with multiple problems. One is the emissions today directly, the inherent emissions from, from cows, but also due to use of fertilizers and energy use in the food system, and then the resulting greenhouse gases. Eutrophication, so basically drain of phosphorus and fertilizers to water bodies is, is another problem. Use of pesticides, again, another problem. Then if we think of the availability of arable land, about 50% of the arable land on the planet is already used by agriculture. So if we want to produce, FAO predicts or estimates that we would need to up to 70% more food by mid of the century for the increasing population and the increasing standard of living. How do you produce that additional food from the piece of land that is available on this planet? I haven't figured that out. Solar Foods, along with many others, is looking to scale up into a viable protein and food replacement supplier. But in the short term, at least, it will be hard to compete on price with traditional agriculture. If we would now go to a big scale factory with the organism and the performance, what we have, we would be there at par with milk and animal-based protein. So we are already in a quite efficient level and the production is really there. But the remaining job to do is to improve it so much so that we could compete with price on the market. So there we're thinking our target is to reach production cost level at around, let's say, a handful of euros per kilogram. So four, five, uh, six euros per, per kilogram on 100% protein basis. And then basically you are cost competitive with and against other protein ingredients. So that would be competitive with animal proteins like whey or it still cost of quite a bit more than soy, right? We can compete with price with other sustainable ingredients or plant-based ingredients. Also, of course, with milk and animal-based proteins because they are even more expensive. And we can see that with the technology we can reach soy once we are at large scale, but that is that is the cheapest to reach. And then we are talking about around two euros per kilogram on 100% protein basis in uh, in food applications. And what are the costs that are the limiting factors here? Is, is electricity the biggest cost? About 50% of the production cost is electricity. So therefore, it's important to go to those locations where you have the cheapest electricity. Then again, renewable power, especially solar and wind, they are quite equally distributed on the planet. So we could be present on all continents on cost-competitive basis. Catherine Tubb, as a keen observer of the sector, says that cost will be the deciding factor in determining how quickly these technologies will be adopted. 
For us, it's more about the cost. Are we starting to see some mainstream companies, for example, start doubling into this technology? So someone like Nestle, now 1.6% of global milk production goes into Nestle products. And of course, that's not milk. That's kind of their chocolate and their lasagnas and things like that. So um, are they going to start buying this technology? I think those are kind of the indicators for us in terms of the cost. Regulation is definitely also an important one. We've seen a lot of grass notifications which is essentially like stamping that this product is fine the most interesting point for us would be when there's a novel protein that's accepted for food consumption that's when the sign that you can actually make proteins that are perhaps better that you can get from animals and then i think just seeing it growing in terms of going into food starting to watch some of these companies producing and going into retail so the big names out there are people like perfect day who make dairy proteins Geltor make the name probably suggests make gelatin but also make collagen which they've used for cosmetics but they just signed a deal to try and look at a gelatin which obviously is used in sweets and then just other food kind of more cheeses we're likely to see so the cheeses the ice creams that start actually using this technology i think is something for people to look out for while alternative meats are gaining popularity among consumers so too is a demand for foods that claim to be more natural less processed and true to a wholesome picture of traditional agriculture we have in our minds Will we be willing to accept farm-free food engineered and grown in a laboratory? George Monbiot. Yes, a lot of people are horrified by the idea. I would point them to how their chicken is produced or their pork is produced if they want to know what horror looks like. I used to work on an intensive pig farm and I've got a fairly good idea of what yuck means. And in fact, I've been quite successfully shielded from those realities and we don't really engage with them and we don't think very hard about where our food comes from and how it's produced. And if we did, perhaps we would change our views somewhat. But it's also the case that people have radically changed their diets over the past 30 or 40 years. We've seen a great shift towards what some people call the global standard diet, which is like beef burgers and chicken nuggets and chips and fizzy drinks, away from their traditional cuisines. That's happened very fast indeed, and it's often been very damaging to people's health. But what it shows is that shifts can happen. And what I'm envisaging and and hoping for is another great shift, but in this case, in ways which could be beneficial for people's health, because certainly you can envisage how lab-grown food could be a lot healthier than the chicken nuggets and the burgers and the fizzy drinks and the chips that many people are eating today, but also one which massively takes pressure off the world's resources while providing potentially the means by which human beings are going to survive this century. And if you look at how most chicken is consumed, to give one example, it's basically just used as a bland, standard white protein, which then carries flavours and coatings and dressings, which are added by food manufacturers or restaurants to turn it into something interesting. And when you think that that bland white protein has a massive cost, both on the welfare of the chickens which are produced to supply it, and on the world's resources, and and indeed on human health, then you think, well, maybe we should be replacing that bland white protein with a different bland white protein that doesn't require animal suffering and doesn't impose such enormous costs. Catherine Tubb believes that the technology's huge potential to be more sustainable and theoretically healthier will help these new sources of protein gain acceptance. 
a lot of the technologies the plant-based food companies use is, um, you know, in terms of iteration, they can change the taste very quickly. They can understand what molecules actually make up the taste of, say, an animal product and then mimic it. But then also there is obviously a growing need from the consumer side. The consumers are much more aware of kind of the environmental impacts, the social impacts of meat raising and, and want something else and want a different choice. But we definitely think that technology pays more of a part than perhaps people realise. This is an ingredient-led business-to-business disruption. And that's what we truly believe about this disruption. So it's very easy to focus on the consumer side. But actually, a lot of food, for example, 35% of dairy in the U.S., we um, have calculated is actually used as an ingredient. And what that means is that it's very easy to disrupt that. So for example, if 10% of cheese in the US ends up on a pizza, if you can make a cheese that basically tastes as good, cooks as well on a pizza, people aren't necessarily going to even worry about where it came from. And if they can say it's sustainably made as well, I mean, people are going to just jump on that, right? So I think there's a, the way to think about it a lot is the fact that it's an ingredient-led business-to-business disruption. And so talk through some of those industry disruptions, then, if you're taking 10% of the dairy industry, for example, a lot of these livestock industries are very fragile or low margin to begin with, what you could see is these collapse pretty quickly. Exactly. So we talk about um, the dairy industry disruption as being kind of a key driver. And we're already seeing that we saw two quite high profile bankruptcies in the US just before the beginning of the year. And we feel to a certain degree that this disruption is inevitable. And we've seen it in a lot of other industries before that you see the old industry kind of almost try and protect the old, but it still dooms them. It, while it sounds simplistic, we have seen this pattern a lot in history before. You see a lot of protectionism. So what we really want to do is say, look, guys, if this technology does come, what can we do now in order to protect the workers, not the jobs? If this happens and happens quickly, it doesn't matter what regulation people put in because there'll be somewhere in the world where it's going to happen quickly. In the Middle East and places like Singapore, where food security is much more of an issue, the value for them of this technology is huge. So even if Europe, say, for example, or the US decide not to take on this technology, it will happen in other places and that will end up disrupting Europe and the US because it's such a globally traded product. If China started, for example, instead of raising pigs using technologies to make cultured meat, that would impact the whole of the US trade. So it's not just protectionism. It's not a global protectionism thing that we're going to see because I think there are countries that would really benefit from this technology much more than, say, Europe or the US. It has got the potential to be very disruptive. George Monbiot again certainly can be profoundly damaging for some sectors. And we can't carry on as we are um, any more than the coal industry can carry on as it is, because we now know that continued coal production is incompatible with the defence of our life support systems, ultimately incompatible with human survival. And what I want to see is governments getting ahead of this and actually thinking it through and saying, let's come up with some sensible policies which reflect the wider public interest. Let's help the particular communities which are going to be damaged by this. Let's help to make sure that they come out the other side in a good place. I think for environmental reasons, I would like to see it happen as quickly as possible. And I'd like to see governments facilitating it rather than hindering it. But they should do so in ways that are socially just, in ways that don't allow a massive corporate concentration 
and ownership of the technology and that do permit a just transition for people whose livelihoods are going to be disrupted by it. So you could see some of these technologies, meaning that food production is even more industrialised and protected by patents and put into the hands of a few companies. Is that a concern? This is an entirely legitimate concern. Corporate power asserting an even greater grip over the food chain. And I very strongly advocate that the key technologies should be open source, that it should not be possible to establish intellectual property rights over crucial technologies which may be essential for feeding humanity. Now, obviously, I don't blame any particular company for trying to pursue those rights, but I think governments should lay down a framework to encourage the open source development of these new technologies, because otherwise we will see a further consolidation of corporate power over the food chain. It's also the case, certainly in some sectors, that open source technologies can be developed faster than technologies which are covered by intellectual property rights, because you allow more players in, you use the wisdom of crowds to develop technologies rather than a few people sitting on them and waiting until conditions are right before they release something. Governments are really trying to stymie new technologies, I feel, on behalf of existing industries. And of course, those existing industries have a well-developed lobbying power. They have sunk costs. They have interests to defend. And so they will get together to try to protect those interests and to prevent new technologies from edging them out. I would love to see governments beginning to engage in a democratic fashion, asking us what we think, looking at how these technologies could best be developed for the benefit of humankind in general, as opposed to the shareholders of a few corporations, and looking at the same time at the tremendous constraints and pressures being put upon the existing food system by environmental change. I don't want governments to be passive about this. I want them to be active and I want them to take decisions which are going to be for the benefit of humanity as a whole. That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series along with articles and further reading at newfoundations.economist.com.